Hello and welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. I'm Howard Kaplan. This On Air podcast features attorneys from Myrick O'Connell, a full-service law firm with offices in Worcester, Westboro, and Boston. Today's topic, keeping control and avoiding family feuds as you age. Joining us today to discuss this issue is Myrick O'Connell elder law attorney Arthur Bergeron. Arthur specializes in helping seniors and their loved ones. His elder law practice focuses on all aspects of lifetime and estate planning for seniors, specifically planning that incorporates protection for seniors and families in crisis who may need additional assistance to deal with dementia symptoms. Arthur, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, Howard, it's great to be on. It's great to have you. Now, if a senior citizen has a health care proxy, does he or she also need a living will? And that, that would be my first question in terms of trying to get the affairs in order and trying to avoid family feuds as you age. Yeah, and, and that's a great question because because many people will come in having drafted a, a so-called living will. And what, what I try to emphasize to these folks is that living wills are actually not enforceable in Massachusetts. A living will is a statement of how you want to be treated during the rest of your life if you're incapacitated. And in many states, these are actually legally binding. In Massachusetts, they're not. So, so that's the first thing that people need to understand. But, so many of my clients don't even have a living will. The only advantage, though, of having a document describing your intentions is even if you have named somebody, your health, the, your, the person in your health care proxy, your health care agent, to make medical decisions for you, that extra document of how you want to be treated will often help them in terms of dealing with other family members who might think, oh, this isn't really what mom wanted or, you know, whatever. And it might also help them just in terms of assuaging their own guilt to the extent that oftentimes I've seen folks who have a proxy feeling obligated to, when they're dealing especially with parents, to, to not let their parents go, right? To keep their parents alive, even if they're in terrible pain, even if there's, there is no chance that they're going to get better. And, and oftentimes having a document that really says to your son or your daughter or your relative, look, this is okay with me. You know, if, 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 I'm in, if I'm in pain, if it doesn't appear that I'm getting better, let me go. That document can be really helpful. I'll just mention one other thing, which is, which is if you don't have a healthcare proxy, in that case, if there, it's an emergency situation, your doctor decides how you're supposed to be treated, right? And, and it, but in that situation, if, you, if you've had this kind of document on file in your medical record, that's also going to help your doctor figure it out, right? But once again, if there is a healthcare proxy, whatever the person who is named in your proxy says goes, right? And so a living will is really only as advi- met as advice to them, nothing else. Now, following up on that, how does having a do not resuscitate or a medical order for life-sustaining treatment relate to having a healthcare proxy? And that also is a great question. So the idea behind both of those documents, the, the so-called MOLST form, uh, the Medical Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment, and the predecessor document, which was a so-called DNR, Do Not Resuscitate document, and these have become decreasingly used as they've been replaced by the broader MOLST form, right? The idea behind these forms is to allow doctors to make decisions and to allow medical professionals to make decisions in a situation where you're not capable of doing saying anything and probably your proxy isn't around your proxy agent. So this is the classic 
situation where you're on the floor and the and somebody called 911 and the EMT comes through the door and you're lying on the floor and the EMT has at that point is supposed to follow a certain protocol and the protocol is save you do everything we can to save you no matter what no matter if it's going to hurt no matter if the chances are very small do everything and and the purpose of these forms is is to basically allow that EMT to do something other than that, right? Those forms, which, which are, by the way, forms that need to be signed by your doctor, you would need to assent to them, but they are really, they are medical orders from your doctor to nurses, to EMTs, that says to them, basically, don't do what you've been trained to do automatically as your protocol. Don't do everything to save this person's life. If the, if the MOLST form says don't, do not resuscitate them, which means don't try to get their heart started if it's stopped, or do not intubate them, which means if they've stopped breathing, don't try to force them to breathe, or don't bring them to the hospital, which to me is a really important one. If your goal is to die at home, then you want a MOLST form that says to these EMTs, don't bring me to the hospital. So otherwise, you're not going to die at home. You're going to go to the hospital. So if those are your decisions, then you want to have that form done, right, with your doctor, have your doctor sign it, and then put it on your refrigerator so that in that emergency situation, the EMTs will see it when they come into your house. But remember, going back to this, the, the issue of the proxy rules, if your healthcare proxy agent is around, they can A, say that they don't want to inf- you to enforce the MOLST form, B, they can write a MOLST form for you, right? They can override or eliminate any most form. Once you've named your healthcare proxy, unless you revoke that proxy, that person has total authority to make a decision for you. So in, in terms of your keeping control of your life, you need to make sure that that proxy knows what your wishes are and you need to have faith in that proxy, which means don't pick your proxy just because you think otherwise, you know, that particular child of yours is going to feel bad if you don't name them. That's a bad reason to name the proxy. You naming a proxy because you feel that that person will do what you would want to have done in an emergency situation, not what they would want necessarily for themselves, but what you would want. We're talking about keeping control and avoiding family feuds as you age, keeping control of your situation as you age. Let me turn now, Arthur, a little bit to powers of attorney. Can I name more than one person on my power of attorney? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. As opposed to the proxy where you can only name one person at a time and the person you named is in charge unless that person's not around. In the case of a power of attorney, you can name multiple people. So oftentimes, in the typical power of attorney, if you have a spouse, you'll often name your spouse. But then I always have to ask my clients, so what if your spouse isn't around? I mean, I'm dealing with with these seniors, you know, or what if your spouse is sick, right? And in that case, you'll typically have an alternate. Um, But you can name more than one alternate. You can say in that situation that, that if you have two or three children, that you want to name all of them. Uh, jointly and severally. You can name them jointly, and the legal consequence of that is that all three of them would have to sign in order to make a legal decision for you. But you can also name them jointly and severally, and the legal consequence of that is any one of them can act on your behalf. So it's, and, and, and I often recommend this to folks because as a practical matter now, kids are all over the place. You know, I, we have, my, we, my wife and I, we have three wonderful kids. 
and we trust them all, but one's in D.C., one's in Austin, Texas, and one's in Colorado Springs. And so if there were an emergency and my wife couldn't make a legal decision for me, I would like my kids to know that whoever's around can take care of this. You know, if somebody's off on a trip or something, whatever, they can just agree on someone who's going to take care of it and know that if that person can't be around at some point, that the other person, they can tag team, you know? So, so it's a real help to people to know that, right? I think, Multiple people. Yeah, I think so many folks, Arthur, just don't know this information. And this is, this is very helpful. So, Arthur, should I let my power of attorney out of my control at any time? So that is a common concern among seniors because people are aware that in general, the person to whom you've given the power to, to handle your legal affairs through the power of attorney can do that from the time that you have signed the document. And so I have clients who are very concerned about that. As a result of that, some clients will say, well, I want to put it right in my power of attorney that this can't be used unless I'm incapacitated. We always discourage that except in very unusual situations. And the reason for that is it often causes great difficulty if you are incapacitated when the person with your power of attorney, your son or your daughter goes to the bank to withdraw funds for you or to, to take care of your affairs. Oftentimes they will have to jump through all kinds of hoops at the bank to demonstrate that you're really incapacitated. What does it mean to be incapacitated? What does it mean to have a doctor's certificate saying I'm incapacitated? What did the doctor mean when he said that I was incapacitated? It causes all kinds of problems. So we typically recommend that people have a power of attorney that just in general name someone, which leads to the question, well, what if this gets abused? Well, the, the first, first thing I, I really try to emphasize to people is if you're concerned that someone's going to abuse your power of attorney, then you shouldn't be naming them in your power of attorney. You, right. you have to be trusting these people right. to handle your affairs. That said, to the extent that you're concerned about that, we often will hold these powers of attorney in escrow. So we will have the client, if they're concerned about this issue, sign the power of attorney, have us hold the power of attorney with, with a note from them that says, don't release this power of attorney until you're convinced that I'm incapacitated and that otherwise this has to happen. If, you're, if you don't want to do that, a second alternative is to simply keep the power of attorney in your possession, right? And, you know, tell your son or your daughter that you have it. Tell them where they can find it if they need it, right? But keep it in your possession if you're really concerned about this issue. You know, we recommend that people simply have this power of attorney so that it's available, so that wh whether it's because you're getting older and you just don't feel like going to the bank or whether you're on a trip and therefore you can't get to the bank and you need somebody to get to the bank for you, right? or to, to call your insurance company because your insurance is due or to pay your taxes. To us, in the ideal situation, if you trust the person you've named, you should simply give them a copy of the power of attorney. And incidentally, copies of powers of attorney are as good as the originals, except if you're using, they are being used to record a document in the registry of deeds. Give one to the person that you've named and just say, look, I just want you to have this in case I need it. You know, in case, in case I can't handle something, in case I call you or in case, you know, because there was an emergency, you know that you need to take care of this something for me. We've been talking about keeping control and avoiding family feuds, arguments, disagreements as you age. And I think in about 13 minutes, Arthur, you did a great job of summing up 
a lot of practical steps one can take as one ages. And I want to thank you for being on on air with Myrick O'Connell. Thanks, Arthur. Oh, well, thank you very much for inviting me. I look forward to coming back soon. We've been talking with Myrick O'Connell, elder law attorney Arthur Bergeron. Arthur, how can folks contact you with questions or concerns? The easiest way is when you can email me, abergeron, A-B-E-R-G-E-R-O-N, at myrickoconnell.com, M-I-R-I-C-K, Myrick O'Connell, O-C-O-N-N-E-L-L, two N's, two L's, dot com. Or you can just give me a call. Let me give you my cell phone number. It's 508-596-5526, or my direct line is 508-860-1470. And I'm, I'm happy to talk to anyone, anytime. I love giving advice. Thank you so much, Arthur. On behalf of attorney Arthur Bergeron and the law firm of Myrick O'Connell, I'm Howard Kaplan. Thanks for joining us. Take care and stay safe. This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Myrick O'Connell. It is intended to inform you of developments in the law and to provide information of general interest. It is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. This podcast may be considered advertising under the rules of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court.